Welcome to Fitness for Consumption, part of the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast network. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. And for more great fitness content, please join Jennifer Schwartz on the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast show, where she offers her experience and knowledge of exercise physiology and athletic training in unique conversations about building resilience and inspiring high quality exercise. So if you're ready, let's get into some fitness for consumption. Welcome to Fitness for Consumption. I'm Paul Juris, and I'm here with my co-host, Gregory Gordon, and today's episode is called I Feel the Earth Move. So this is the earth moving under our feet. Naturally, we're going to be talking about unstable surfaces. And to help us with this is our returning guest, Dr. David Bame, uh, who's done some work, a lot of research actually in this area. And so we're going to really get into this starting with the history of instability training. Like how did that enter the fitness consciousness um, and how did it become such a prevalent form of exercise in gyms and everywhere else that we're looking at, right? Gigi, right. what else? And then from do? there, we're going to go into some practical considerations that hopefully may give people reason to reconsider how labile or unstable surfaces are actually utilized. Yeah, because everybody's just jumping on them without necessarily thinking of what the outcomes right. are. So I think this will be very instructive to those people. We're going to look at equilibrium and stability as a biomechanical construct. So now we're using fancy <laughs> terms, but yeah, so we're going to look at the biomechanics of equilibrium and stability and provide some more scientific background for people so that they can really think through some of these issues. And then, and then finally, we're going to offer a little perspective from each of us, which is, you know, really needed on this kind of topic. And especially that we've actually got the guy that's probably done arguably the most research in this area um, to give his perspective on how you take what he studied in the research setting and you can apply that to everyday life. Absolutely. I mean, perspective is what this show is all about. And hopefully we'll, with a little perspective, our listeners will really walk away with a new understanding. Of yep. what this you is. can't get this every in your average everyday podcast, folks. You got to listen up here. That's for sure. Okay, here we go. So Dave, we're going to talk about an, a different topic in an area that you were very, very uh, heavily involved in researching is instability training. And that's become so vogue now, it seems like if you go in the gym, 
no one's standing on solid ground anymore. I mean, everybody's standing on BOSUs and Dynadiscs and Airx pads and, you know, there's nothing stable anymore. It's like the world is shaking beneath our feet. So, you know, before we we get into some of your research and talk about some of your discoveries, one question that I have, and, you know, I have my own experience because I started my career in academia, but then I quickly shifted into orthopedic rehab. How did how did instability training or unstable surface enter our fitness consciousness? It's sort of, we shifted from being in, in a gym and bodybuilding to all of a sudden standing on these labile surfaces. So what was it that sort of got us or drove us toward these applications? What do you think? So the, uh, the use of the instability devices um, was really certain. So for instance, when you go to the gym, you might see these things called Swiss balls. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's interesting because I, I did talks in Germany and I did talks in Switzerland. And when you go to Switzerland, I, I did a, a presentation for their physiotherapy association and um, they don't use Swiss balls. They don't call them Swiss balls in Switzerland. They, uh, like actually, they don't call uh, French fries, you know, they don't call them French fries in France, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. <laughs> right. So if you go to Germany, it's called Petsy balls. If you go to Switzerland, they're called uh, uh, physio balls or exercise balls. Mm -hmm. But originally, the reason they were called Swiss balls is because supposedly it was the Swiss physiotherapists who first started using these labile surfaces, such as balls, in order to help people in rehabilitation. And again, mm -hmm. it goes back to training specificity that, you know, in our world, we, we walk on sand, we walk on gravel, we walk on ice. There's many situations where we're unstable. Uh, older people have stability problems. So how could we um, stress uh, this aspect of the neuromuscular system to get uh, adaptations? And so then the, um, the, uh, the athletic trainers and the strength and conditioning people started taking that idea and, and put it athletes because again, hockey players are playing on ice, soccer players, football players are playing on muddy fields, um, skiers are on unstable situations. So wouldn't it be logical that if you're going to compete and train uh, or practice under unstable conditions, you should be training in the weight room under unstable conditions. And so then, as you said, we got the BOSU balls, the Swiss balls, uh, all those uh, showing up. But the question that I had when I walked into a weight room in the early 2000s or late 1990s and saw people standing on Swiss balls doing bicep curls, and I was thinking, you know, you don't play basketball like that. <laughs> you know, you're not <laughs> standing on a Swiss ball um, doing a shot. You're, you're always moving, you're dynamic. So, and, and when they're doing their exercise, of course, they, they weren't lifting as much weight as they could under stable conditions. So I took it upon myself to uh, to take a look and, and see what's really happening. Are there any advantages or disadvantages uh, of using these devices? And are there particular um, populations that it might be more useful for and or less useful for? Hmm. You know, what's interesting about that is where we look at stability. Now, my first exposure to an unstable device other than the physio ball was the BAPS board, which BAPS stood for Biomechanical Ankle Platform System. And I think that was introduced by Gary Gray, if I'm not mistaken, but that was yeah. a rehabilitative device, which was a plastic disc. 
which had little um, hemicircle, hemicircular devices that went underneath it at various points that we could create a slightly unstable uh, platform in a variety of ways. And it was used to treat chronic ankle instability. And so the idea there is if you put the system on an unstable surface, we're going to induce potentially high levels of co-contraction, right? Because the system's response to this instability is to tighten all the muscles around that moving joint around the surface and stabilize it, which makes a lot of sense to me. So if you have a chronically unstable ankle and you expose it to this environment, eventually the muscles are going to get very responsive and start stiffening and stabilizing that joint. But you mentioned something that's really interesting is the difference between static and dynamic, right? So if we put someone on an unstable surface and use it for developing static joint stability or even static postural stability, it makes a lot of sense to me anyway. But in a dynamic sense, so if we're trying to create dynamic conditions where we're moving around, do we really want to be on unstable surfaces while we're doing that? And as you pointed out, if the force production is lower, then how does it help us to achieve our goals if we still want to be producing force and improving our rate of tension development? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So there are devices out there, and I can't remember the, the brand names, but... Um... You know, there's a device out there that is like a um, uh, a rubber mat, and on that rubber mat, there's uh, there's folds and and hemicircles, as you mentioned. And with this mat, you can move and uh, do agility actions, uh, or if you're older individuals, just walk over this mat. And uh, you have to be able to adjust to these uh, different uh, uh, labile surfaces. So. Um, you can also do it, for instance, uh, I, I know uh, strength and conditioning people out in Alberta, Western Canada, out in the Rockies, and they have their athletes run up, uh, up a mountain, jumping from one large rock to another. And so all the rocks aren't horizontal. Some of them are at different angles. And so then, like we talked about before with the, uh, the ankles, you have to adjust your ankles and the uh, agonist antagonist and the stabilization to be able to push off that uh, rock at um, at different velocities and uh, angles, so you can you can develop uh, different devices or even in natural again running on sand, um, you you will have that instability and you have to adjust to that instability. But again, um, you mentioned about the, the drop in force. Well, in our studies, we found that uh, often the average drop in force when people were doing, for instance, a study uh, Anderson and, and Bame in 2004, I think it was we saw a drop of 60% in force when people were doing a chest press on a Swiss ball. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, if you want to get strong, you want to put greater forces on the, on the muscles. Again, like we said with bodybuilders to, to break down some protein, get that super adaptation and, um, and get larger and stronger muscles. So in that case, you'd say, well, geez, athletes shouldn't be working on that. But on the other hand, there's always another hand, we do find that with, with the same uh, force load, even though it's, if it's submaximal, the activation is much higher when it comes to an unstable surface. So if you're an individual um, who doesn't want to do heavy weights, or especially if you're in rehab, and again, so I've injured my shoulder, I want to bring it back as quickly as I can. 
but I don't want to stick a high load on my shoulder because I've got damaged ligaments or I've got damaged tendons, muscles or whatever. So I've got to start with low loads. And that means going back to those low threshold, slow twitch motor units. And mm-hmm. I won't be able to activate those fast twitch motor units. But if I'm under an unstable situation, I'm going to get a higher activation. And so now I'm going to get be able to activate more of those um, fast expanse of motor units, the slow twitch and the fast twitch with less load and therefore less stress on the actual connective tissue and muscle tissue of my uh, of my injured uh, joint. But again, point number three, we talked about quality before. So is it beneficial just to be able to activate a greater extent of muscles? We talked about motor control. So we have to be able to find a fine progression between being able to activate more of those muscles and then be able to activate them in the right sequence so that we can do our job. And so that's the, the progression that we have to, uh, to find. We, can't, we, we don't want to be too unstable because then all we do then is we just contract everything, all right? right. There's what's called a, a stiffness strategy. If, mm-hmm. if I told you to walk, there's a two by four on the floor right now in front of you, and I said, walk the length of that two by four, you just go bang, 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 that's no problem at all. If I stuck that two by four on the top of a 20 story building and asked you to walk across it, you'd all of a sudden, you'd stiffen right up and you'd be very, very stiff trying to move across that because it's an unstable, it's an unfamiliar environment to you. And mm-hmm. now you're gonna stiffen everything up and that's not the way that you uh, move properly. You have to be smooth, you have to be relaxed when you move. So we have to find a, a progression where we, we add a bit of instability to provide a stress to the individual, but not too much instability so that they just clam up and stiffen up completely. Right. Yeah, Dave, that's exactly, I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about. Because again, a lot of times people will take some of the headlines from some of this research and I feel sort of misinterpreted. And so there's a difference between EMG activity, which can show a lot of activity and force production where you can actually go down in force production, but have higher EMG activity, right? Because you've got all this co-contraction. Exactly. Um, And so to the point of having like controlled movement. So I think what happens is that people are infatuated with the headline of like, oh, you know, they just see more EMG activity and automatically assume, okay, this must be superior than to what if I'm getting more EMG activity somewhere that must be superior to doing the same exercise on a surface that's stable. But um, can you just expand on that a little bit and how that you can actually have these, you can have less force production, but more EMG activity, and that's not necessarily beneficial. Yeah, well, so what, what, uh, in order to move something, you've got your mobilizer muscles. And so if I'm going to do a, um, a bench press and my mobilizer muscles could be my triceps, my pecs, but with all that stress on my shoulders, I've got stabilizer muscles as well. So my rotator cuff muscles are my stabilizer muscles. So if I'm very unstable, then what I'll probably do is I'm going to turn on my rotator cuff muscles to a far greater extent to protect myself. Mm-hmm. But then, because I'm unstable, um, 
I'm not going to use my pec again to mobilize that movement. I'm going to also use my pec to stabilize my shoulder. And like we said before, with those co-contractions, we're just going to turn everything on without the thought of what we need to turn on. Now, we need to turn down the antagonist, like we said before, to protect ourselves at the end of the range of motion. But we basically want to try and minimize our antagonist contractions when we're actually doing that movement. So mm-hmm. when we're too unstable, um, yeah, we're just turning everything on. So we, we've got to find the right extent of instability. Because again, we are playing soccer on muddy fields and football on muddy fields. We are playing um, beach volleyball on an unstable surface. So again, from the weight room, we can progress from certain types of instability there to the very specific instability of the situation on the soccer field or on the beach. And that can help us, but we have to find the right proportion of instability in order to do that. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it, this is another example of more is not necessarily better, right? So better is better mm-hmm. because to have a high activation and a low output, that may be good for one reason, but in another context, the low output may not be getting us where we want. You know, I've had conversations with people about doing squats on physio balls or squats on BOSUs, and I don't advocate doing anything like that. And the reason is, you know, people, the trainers, when I'm, I'm arguing with them, over this thing. And they say, well, look, you know, when you do it, we're working on your core stability and we're making you stable. And look, while you're doing this thing, you're wobbling all over the place and you're unstable and we need to make you more stable. And I said, well, maybe you're interpreting it the wrong way. Because what I see happening in this environment is, as you say, if you have a very unstable surface that you're standing on, the the system is going to respond by tensing up, by tightening up, by co-contracting all the muscles around these joints because you're going to fall otherwise. So it stiffens. But at the same time, you're asking it to move up and down. You're trying to do a squat, which requires not stiffness, but fluidity by this coordinated control of opposing muscle groups and synergies and synergists, right? So what's happening here? We're trying to stiffen and move at the same time. And to me, that's sort of anathema to the brain. Like, wait, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to stay still and stiffen everything? Or do you want me to move? And so what happens is you end up in this herky-jerky type of environment where you go, move, stop, move, stop, move, stop. And you end up with what I call spasticity. So I don't think that's conducive to either real stability development or efficient movement development. I think you put yourself in this weird state, which is completely unproductive. What would you say to that? Well, um, we've done a number of studies where uh, we've looked at natural movements to see mm-hmm. and compare them to uh, working out in an unstable environment. So, for example, you know, before I had an arthritic knee, I used to do a lot of running. I'd go and do a five or ten k run, and I'd come back. We have the and... same like family lineage here. <laughs> like, think, I'm 62. I've got an arthritic <laughs> knee. I've got multiple surgeries. We, we have to have some like common relations somewhere. We're practically twins. <laughs> Absolutely. I have a little more hair than you do, though. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not bald. I just shave it. That's all. Okay. Yeah. But nonetheless, so after that run, I would um, come back and I'd get on the field and I'd start doing uh, um, sit-ups and curl-ups, et cetera, to, to work on my core. And I started thinking about it. And I was thinking, why do I really need this? Because I'm so tired after my run. My trunk and my core is tired anyways. Do I really need to do extra um, chin-ups? I'm not chin-ups. I'm sorry, curl-ups and sit-ups. Mm-hmm. So we, we did a, um, 
uh, an experiment where we had people run on a treadmill at a, at a fairly high speed. In fact, these are uh, quite uh, talented uh, runners. And um, we compared the activation of the, of the abdominals and the lower back in comparison to actually doing curl-ups to fatigue and back extensions to fatigue. And we found that the, um, the running provided higher activation of the back than doing a back extension. Mm-hmm. And that running provides very similar activation of the abdominals as doing sit-ups. So by running, you're working your core. You don't have to add extra things because when you're running, you land on one foot. Now you're unstable. Your pelvis wants to shift and you've got to stabilize the pelvis to keep you from falling over. Then you land on the other foot and the pelvis wants to shift again and you've got to stabilize it to keep yourself up. So you're in a very unstable environment. In another study we looked at and we compared doing heavy squats to doing um, squats on an unstable environment. So of course, in the unstable environment, uh, we had to do less load. And we found that doing the heavy squats provided us with higher activation than mm-hmm. doing the unstable squats. Mm-hmm. Then uh, there's a guy named Jeff Willardson. I've heard of Jeff, but he's out in Montana. He once wrote an article in Strength and Conditioning Journal and said, the best way to, to uh, maintain your uh, stability or build your stability is just play the sport that you're involved with. And so we brought in another study by uh, Mike Wall, one of our uh, ex-grad students, and we had individuals that had been training for five to 10 years doing squats, deadlifts, a lot of you know, free weights. And then we had them stand on different devices and there is no increase in activation because these guys already had good balance and good stability. Sure. So again, talking about progression, I think if I brought somebody in who's a beginner, a novice, it might be a good idea to start them off on a, um, a mildly unstable surface in order to build up their balance and add that to uh, exercises that involve free weights. And, but then as we move on and they've developed their balance to a, an optimal degree, there's no need to go back to these unstable devices because doing squats, doing deadlifts, doing uh, cleans, are unstable in themselves. Doing plyometrics is unstable on themselves. So then you don't really need those uh, devices. Well, again, unless you got injured and now you want to do something with low load and high activation. Interesting. Dave, let me just push back on that a little bit because I'm, I'm just curious i see things from a different perspective so um uh, and actually i hope pj will bring it up in a minute but he so he did a study he was the former chief science officer at cybex uh a medicine uh and pj jump in here and correct me if i'm wrong but subjects were doing push-ups both hands on a medicine ball and you know that has some degree of instability um and so but what we what the research tends to support is that when you're on an unstable surface, if both limbs are attached to the same thing, that if you've got a weakness on one side, the strong side actually has to downregulate to the weaker side because other, if the weaker side just can't upregulate to the stronger side, and if the strong side doesn't downregulate to the weaker side, you're not going to be able to perform the movement. So my concern, and this is uh, anyone that's going to listen to our podcast is going to get really tired of hearing me say this, but... My biggest concern when I'm at the gym working out 
at least back in the in the good old days when I would actually see other people in the gym. And I just sort of look around the gym floor and I see people training with the trainer. My, I'm less concerned about like, oh, this is going to injure that person or that they shouldn't do this. It's going to injure that person. It's really just efficiency and making sure that like someone that's paying a professional for their time is at least getting some value out of their time. And what I do see a lot of times is like someone could easily be spending 30 to 40 minutes wobbling on a BOSU ball trying to squat and if you just getting on the bozu ball if you've got some sort of strength differential right to left which is pretty common and you've the strong side already has to down regulate to the weaker side now you're on this unstable surface where you've got to decrease your force production again um to me a much better use of their time would be to start with something really stable like uh a plate loaded calf raise and just build the strength there and then maybe some knee extensions and maybe some uh, leg press just to build, you know, hip extensor strength and knee extensor strength and plantar flexion strength. And then, you know, by the way, what do you need for balance? All of those things you need to end and then add in to me, like the thing to coax in over time would be maybe some instability and some, certainly some rate of tension development. But I would see that's in my, and again, just obviously my opinion, but my opinion is that starting them on an unstable surface, if I'm going to spend 30 minutes of their time and they've got to do so much down regulation. And, you know, obviously there's a learning curve to it too. I'm just not making good use of the one hour a week I might have with them. Yeah, that's a great point. And again, there's so many ways to um, institute instability. So you can do unilateral exercises. Again, another article that we published, we compared unilateral to bilateral and looked at the activation of the trunk. And again, unilateral exercises cause higher activation of the trunk on the contralateral side. So rather than doing a double bicep curl, you can work your biceps and your core by doing unilateral biceps. And therefore, you have to keep your, your, uh, your trunk stable and straight uh, by activating the contralateral side. Uh, rather than just doing a, a traditional bilateral squat, you can do Bulgarian squats. So now it's kind of like if you're not familiar with the Bulgarian squat, it's kind of like doing a, mm -hmm. a forward lunge and then mm -hmm. back up again. So now you're on, instead of your feet being shoulder width apart, they're maybe more than shoulder width apart. I'm sorry, um, lengthwise they're apart, but uh, in terms of the, uh, the um, lateral displacement, they're very close together. So yeah, you're, we would call that a tandem stance, right? So one right. Yeah, tandem, the other. yeah, tandem stance. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of ways to, uh, to work on stability uh, other than just um, using these devices. Yeah, I mean, people naturally, when you talk about instability training, the first thing they do is throw you on something that's really wobbling a lot. And there are a couple of things that that you said earlier that I want that I picked up on, and I made some notes here. One is the notion of unstable versus variable. So you said, for example, in trail running, if you're running along a trail and you have rocks embedded in the ground and your foot lands on that, to me, that's not necessarily unstable because it's not going to move underneath you. It's just that it's variable in that the landing position of the foot and the angle and positioning there and the kinematics of that may be changing. So I would call that a variable surface. And I think that's very valuable. When I work with stroke patients early on, what we used to do is like create a little obstacle course for them. Instead of having them walk down the hallway, we would throw all kinds of objects on the ground and they had to step over them and on them and around them. 
And that variability we found was very beneficial to that rehabilitative process, which also brings me to the next point about this, and that's predictability. So even if you're in the sand, if you're on the ice and you put your foot down, your skate down, you get on edge and you put, apply force through the edge into the ice, you could slide, but if you're an accomplished skater, you're, you can fairly well predict what's going to happen while you're going through that motion. I mean, if you hit a wet spot or something like that, you could slide out from underneath you. But predictability, I think, is a very important component of this because if I'm running on this surface and I'm really visually attuned to what's going on and I can see the varying terrain coming at me, I can predict pretty well what's going to happen when my foot hits the ground. Now, when my foot lands in a hole and I'm not paying attention, now I've got an inversion sprain in the making because I'm unable to predict that occurrence. I can't stiffen the joint in advance. And so I end up putting a lot of load through that joint. And then, of course, this stress uh, produces strain in the ligament. But predictability is, is important. Running in the sand, yes, it gives, but it's relatively predictable. But you're standing on a BOSU and you're pushing unequally with your legs, which we all do because we're human. No one's perfectly symmetrical. Now, all of a sudden, that thing starts wobbling back and forth because you have unequal forces applied to it and it becomes a highly unpredictable environment. And the response, I think, is for us to stiffen up like boards. It's the same thing as being up on the two by four on the top of a, of a tower you can't predict if the wind's going to come, so you get really stiff. And I think mm -hmm. that has to factor into the way we apply these things. No, great point. And I love your point about the variable surface. But when we talk about uh, putting the person under stress in terms of their stability or instability, we can do it by you know, having them stand on a Swiss ball or a BOSU ball, or we can put them in a position where their center of gravity is outside their base of support. Mm -hmm. So that trail running, as we mentioned before, if I'm stepping on this um, this rock that's on an angle and it puts my center of gravity out of the base of support, I have to learn how to get my center of gravity back within my base of support. There's mm -hmm. a term, and uh, we published a paper on it called metastability. And mm -hmm. I was talking with a biomechanist um, um, one time, and uh, he was saying to me that, when I talk about instability resistance training, it's not really the correct term because if you are unstable or any body is unstable, the body will move away from its um, stable position and move to a new position that's stable. Which mm -hmm. is, right. For instance, you fall over and now you're right. Mm -hmm. But when you're metastable, you can transiently or temporarily be out of a, a stable position. So your center of gravity is outside the base of support but you can bring it back. So again, I'm trail running and I hit that rock and I'm off my center of gravity, but then I adjust by, by my next step and put myself back under my base of support. If I'm a, a hockey player and I wanna turn as quickly as possible, as a young hockey player, you may be very vertical as you turn the corner. But right. as you, as you learn to have better balance, you take that corner at greater and greater angles and allows you to have more centripetal force into the ice to allow you to go mm -hmm. around much faster. Right. So whether you're putting the instability externally or you're setting up an environment where you're forcing the body to go under various metastable conditions, then you can 
uh, improve it. And I think what you're talking about with the variable uh, services is perfect for improving somebody's metastability. PJ? Uh, yeah, so that uh, that reminds me of PJ and I did a course a while back on balance. And, you know, when you're doing a course on balance, it makes me think of, so whenever I do see someone in a gym setting and they are using an unstable surface, you know, typically they're doing it for the, under the guise of improving balance. And then to your point, Dave, like, you know, injuries really happen not in static equilibrium, but in dynamic equilibrium. And if we're going to spend a lot of time in the gym trying to work on improving equilibrium, um, I think what I hear you saying, and it's certainly my perspective, is that we should really be focused much more on, uh, you know, again, in a graded and appropriate way, but introducing dynamic equilibrium problems to solve. So like hops, leaps, jump, things like that, as opposed to, you know, people aren't getting really hurt, typically speaking, because they're standing up still and, you know, waiting in line for movie, then just dropping, you know, like that's, that's atypical. Like what's happening is that people, you know, and it could be age related, could be a lot of different reasons, but they're stepping off on a curb. And to PJ's point, it's unpredictable. Like they, and then they don't have the power to correct getting their center of mass over their base of support. So as opposed to spending uh, just, uh, if you're going to use the unstable surfaces for the purpose of balance, um, working on the static, even in that, that whatever percentage of time you think it's necessary to do so, my argument would be that like whatever percentage of time you're working on improving balance should shift more towards dynamic equilibrium versus static equilibrium. Well, I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding here between these two terms. And, and this is something that is coming out of this conversation, which I think is helpful. When people think of stability, you know, because of things like FMS and some of these other methods that have been thrown out there, everybody's looking at joint stability. Whereas what we're talking here about here is postural stability and equilibrium. And there's a difference between an unstable joint and an unstable posture. And Dave, you pointed it out. You, you want to keep your center of gravity as close to the center of your base of support or the most stable position over your base of support as possible. Because in fact, the most stable position may be one edge if the force is pulling you across in the opposite direction, right? So we need to distinguish between joint stability and postural stability. And I think people are losing sight of that. And so a lot of these tools that we're using may be great for introducing muscle activity around a joint in order to create a more, a more stabilizing function of the synergists. But when we're talking about dynamic equilibrium and what you're referring to as metastability, that's really a postural mechanism of getting the center of gravity in the right place so that we can apply force effectively and efficiently and move properly. And I think people lose sight of that. And I would rather do that on a stable surface. And by the way, you know, there's a whole conversation around proprioception, which we haven't gotten into, but Gigi and I talk about it. We kind of laugh about it. It's, you know, it's great if you can sense that you're falling, but it's better if you can do something about it. Like, I know I'm falling, but I can't stop myself. I'm going to hit the ground. No, I know I'm falling and I'm able to apply force in a way that allows me to stop that and correct myself. And I think that's the thing that we're losing focus on by putting everybody on these unstable devices. Yeah, and again, to the, the points that you made before, the predictability and the point that I made before, again, regarding seniors and explosive strength, you can be very strong, but if 
if you slip and you can't move fast enough, you can't recover fast enough. Right. So we have to have, especially seniors, moving quickly in order to be able to adjust and um, be able to uh, to know that, you know, I'm, I'm walking outside in the wintertime, there's snow on the ground. I'm expecting that I'm going to do a little bit of sliding. And therefore, uh, from my experiences in that environment, then I can predict that this is going to happen and I can adjust quickly. Good point. So Dave, can we say on record that you are, that you promote power training for people throughout the entire lifespan, even well into their eighties and nineties? I would say from six to 96. I love that because, because I think people, uh, you know, and it's certainly like a lay person, probably they don't know what power actually really means, but like, I think at least in the commercial pop culture context of fitness, people assume they hear power and they automatically think CrossFit and Olympic lifting and like Mm -hmm. this whole segment of training that like in their mind, I can understand how that wouldn't apply to them. But to me, certainly with anyone I work with, it's critical. Yeah. That anyone throughout their entire lifespan. um, And I, I don't see people younger than 20 or so. So, Mm -hmm. but that power training is always important. That rate of tension development training is always important. Yeah. I did a talk in uh, Germany one time and um, it it was a bit embarrassing because a guy came up before me and he was talking about uh, plyometrics and uh, his experiences as a a German researcher. And he got up and said that, that children shouldn't be doing plyometrics. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, because my whole presentation is children should be doing plyometrics. So um, I, I got up there, and uh, but I realized that it was all in the definition. According to right. this gentleman, plyometrics is high depth jumping. So you're on a platform, oh, okay. you're a meter, three or four feet above the ground, you're coming down, you're exploding off the ground. And he didn't think that, you know, eight, nine, and 10-year-old kids should be a meter off the ground and, and, and landing and jumping off of it. Um, Has he so, ever been to a playground? Because yeah, but if yeah, I, my nieces but if are. But if you're only a meter tall and you're on a meter high platform, yeah, it, it might be I tough. Get it. So, right. but, I get it. But my my definition of plyometrics is any any stretch shortening psychoactivity. So right. kids are skipping. Right. Skipping is a plyometric. Sure. So That's I was right. talking about skipping and hopping and and doing all these activities where you might only be a few inches off the ground, but it's still plyometric. But he was talking mm-hmm. about being a meter, meter and a half, two meters off the ground and jumping down like, you know, Vladis Vosky would have done in the 1980s or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that, you know, but listen, a kid's going to do that anyway. Like Gigi said, I mean, I've seen kids jump off the monkey bars onto the ground and, you know, if we're not there to stop them, they're not going to get stopped. So, you know, now we've been talking about these unstable surfaces and I want to talk about orientation for a moment because it relates to a paper that you wrote with Ken Anderson and Robert Kernu uh, that you mm-hmm. published in 02. Um, so far, we've been talking about standing or sitting on top of an unstable surface so that the force is being applied in a vertical line down through that. So we're getting some downward deflection of the unstable surface. But in this particular study, you had people sitting on the ball but doing leg extensions. So the cable was coming from behind them and then they were extending their leg forward. So yes, they are still sitting on the ball. So their body weight was causing some distraction in the ball and compression, but the loading that was potentially inducing an unstable state was 
horizontally applied through the ball. And can you just, without getting too deep in the biomechanics, explain the difference in those conditions and what you may have expected in terms of the response? Because I think in that study, you also showed a 70% decrease in force output when you were doing that work. Yeah. So like I said, yeah, we had people either sit on a ball, Swiss ball, or sit mm -hmm. on a bench. And they did two different exercises. They either did a, a knee extension, isometric knee extension, or they did a, a plant, isometric plantar flexion. When they tried to do the isometric knee extension, forces dropped by 70%. So what was happening there was that there was a unilateral knee extension. So mm -hmm. while their, un, their, their butt, their body was unstable, and then their ankle was inserted into a strap, and, the, and the, um, it was a, attached to a strain gauge, so it could move back and forth. So being unilateral, it caused a disruptive torque. So the body, right. when you push that way, the body wanted to be pulled this way, uh, whatever. <laughs> wanted to move in the, uh, the, uh, the opposite direction. Wanted a counterbalance. So since, our, exactly. since our listeners couldn't see you doing that, I'm just going to jump in and say that the, the torque was causing the ball to rotate either clockwise or counterclockwise, but it was trying to rotate underneath the, the subject while they were doing it. Yeah, or the subject was the one that was rotating. Okay. But nonetheless, the ball would, would move as well. Mm -hmm. Whereas when they did the counterflexion, they, they did that on a device that was stable. So you only had one site of instability, and that was your butt. Whereas okay. with knee extension, you had two sites of instability, your butt and your ankle. So, so once again, remember... Freedom to manage. That's right. So uh, yeah. as we mentioned before, if you're too unstable, the forces drop dramatically. And that doesn't do you any good. But when we did plantar flexion, uh, I think, I'm trying to remember, I think the, the forces dropped by like 30% or 20%. So it was only a, a moderate amount of instability. And so they could still get a, a decent contraction out of it. So again, if your you know, goal is to provide the greatest amount of instability possible, well, then then if all you want to do is work on static balance, something like that might be good for you. But if, if your goal is to gain strength under unstable conditions, being too unstable uh, won't allow that to happen. That point illustrated again in this study. So that is really brilliant. Uh, this has also been an amazing topic to discuss because it really, it's not about telling people that what they're doing is right or wrong. It's simply about getting people to think about what they're doing and not just apply something because A, someone else is doing it and they see them doing it, or B, someone's telling them to do it, that there actually is some thought that should go into this before we choose to use these devices and surfaces. Uh, and we should probably educate ourselves better about these things before we jump into the fray and just start doing it. Absolutely. Now, Gigi, actually, anything else? On, I'm sorry, go ahead, Dave. I was just going to want to mention one thing is that kids love these things so even if <laughs> you know uh, doing a you know a, a traditional squat might give you instability there's a lot of variety that you can throw in by having kids do exercises on all these balls and, and different things so if your um, goal is to keep kids interested in the resistance training program rather than just having them doing traditional bicep curls and bench presses, et cetera, et cetera, throw some balls at them and have them do them on the balls. Even if the forces go down, the interest stays high. So again, you got to look at who are we trying to, um, to recruit here or what is the purpose? And, and in certain populations, it's a great idea to use uh, unstable devices. 
Yep, Dave, that's a great point. And frankly, you know, personal engagement, whether you're in a typical fitness, rehab, or youth sports setting, has to be considered. I mean, we know most mm -hmm. people fall off the fitness wagon because they can't find things that they find both physically and emotionally enjoyable. So yes, I totally agree that finding something that people like is important and should be considered in anyone's program. At the, at the same Agreed. time, though, we need to be judicious in how we apply these things. So, you know, we can make the most efficient use of someone's time that they're willing to, de to devote to exercise. Yeah, I agree, Gigi. I mean, you know, we want people to have fun, but if most of the uh, exercise session is spent on these devices, then, you know, maybe we're not making the best use of time. So depending on their goals and objectives, we really need to plan this properly and use these for the right mm -hmm. reasons. And with that, folks, we're going to wrap up this episode of Fitness for Consumption. We called it I Feel the Earth Move. <laughs> We would like to uh, thank our very special guest, Dr. David Bame, for joining us and sharing his wisdom with us. And we hope to see you in our upcoming episodes. So, hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. So, look, we know you have a lot of options. Just about everyone on the planet now has a podcast. So we really do appreciate you uh, spending time with us and listening to what we have. So we hope you've enjoyed the podcast and you're finding value in some of the concepts we're exploring. So look, let's keep the conversation going. And in order for that to happen, we need to hear from you. So we'd love for you to reach out to us on our social media platform. So you can find us on Instagram at fitness for consumption and on Twitter at fitness for consumption as well. So we hope to hear from you soon.